I was just sitting here thinking as our team was leading us. I, I love being in this room. I love the sound system. I love hearing all the voices sing. It, it's special to me. I love it. I, I love um, the production and, and, and the translation. I just love all aspects of the times that we get to be together in this larger gathering. But I got to tell you, I also love being in homes. I was thinking about uh, last Sunday in our City Group Sunday, and I was thinking about the worship, because for a moment there, I couldn't really hear you. I could mainly just hear them. And I appreciate hearing the sound system. I love that. But I also love moments where in our homes, we just hear one another. Or when worship looks different than somebody with an unbelievable gifting to lead worship. I'll never forget in one of the groups that, that we were in, Little guy, some of you may remember Kevin. Kevin had been adopted. He was a foster child that had been adopted by a couple in our church. And uh, we were in our small group. And Kevin uh, wanted to sing us a song. And so he started singing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And if you knew Kevin's story, <laughs> that, that song all of a sudden took on an unbelievably deep and beautiful meaning. Because from this little tiny child... He was leading us in a profound moment of worship. That doesn't happen in this room. What I'm saying is, I love what God is doing in our church. Because what we're doing and what we feel led of God to do with our church is to give equal value to the large gathering, which is what this is, and to the small gathering. Because it's the small gathering that we get to do the one another's. This room wasn't designed for the one another's. It's a small gathering that we get to do life together. We get to know one another at a deeper level than we can know in this room. And I know that so many of us are so used to church as we've known it. But can I tell you, we want to be church as God wants it, not just as we've known it. That's what we want to be. And we want to be the people of God on mission for God. And we have to do that with life together in discipleship and making him known where we live. And so I'm excited about what God is doing through the equal value we're seeing in these different ways, in the large gathering and the small gathering. Of course, I'm glad you're here today for our large gathering. I love the, uh, the word of God, and I love the privilege to teach it anytime I get that opportunity to. Um, we, we studied last week about the uh, rich young ruler, and we talked about sort of some of that aspect uh, of, of what that lesson taught us um, this week has been kind of crazy in our home. My, uh, I think she's in here. I've got a 13-year-old now, so that means I have two teenagers. Pray for me. Pray for me. Seriously, pray for me. Um, but anyway, I've been thinking, Lori and I have been going through all these old pictures of our, of our kids. And I love my girls so much, and I love thinking about them when they were little. And I was thinking about the text that we're working on today. And I couldn't help but think about this memory of Daisy Joy, because uh, for a season there, I was leading worship, and I was, had the privilege to go around the country and, and lead worship and do concerts and different things. And one time, I was rehearsing for a concert in my little studio in our home. And the way that I rehearse for worship is I worship. It's real simple. I just work on the music, but as you're worshiping and as you're working on music, often that leads me to a place of sincere worship. And this day was no different. I've been working on this song for this little tour. And I found myself weeping and worshiping for the Lord. And my hands were raised. And I'm, I'm alone in my studio, I think. And I'm just there worshiping. And I'm weeping. And the song ends. And I'm just enjoying the presence of the Lord. And I'm wiping tears away. And I'm just praying. <sighs> Take a deep breath. And I open my eyes. And my two or three-year-old Daisy Joy is standing right in front of me. Hands raised, eyes closed. And I almost lost it. It was one of the most beautiful moments in my memory of my children. Because I, I got to see her doing what daddy was doing. Parents, it's so important that we teach our children, that we disciple our children. But you know what's most important? That you lead them by how you live. That as you worship, they learn to worship. And as you obey God, they learn to obey God. And so what was so neat about that moment, even though I didn't even intend for it to be a teachable moment, it was a teachable moment of worship. And what's so cool about our text this morning is that that's what we see Jesus doing with his disciples and with us. He takes an opportunity and he teaches us something about discipleship. 
If you have your Bibles, turn with me over here in Mark chapter 10. And we're going to look at verses 32 and 34 to start with. It says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and, and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Let's pray this morning and ask that the Lord would help us to open our hearts to his word, can we? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the privilege to be together as the church, as the church gathered, where we can worship, Lord, where we can open your word and we can learn from it. So God, today we pray that you would teach us, just as you were on the road to Jerusalem, you taught your disciples. Lord, let that story now inform our lives about your gospel and what it means to follow you what it means to let go of the things that are so important to us and learn to serve and sacrifice those around us. Remind us today, oh God, it's not about us. It's about you. Lord Jesus, I pray with all of my heart that your spirit would lead us to to truth today, that you would increase, Father, in this time and that I would decrease, that you would be glorified in your people, Father God would come to a place of decision and be obedient to follow you in the direction you're leading us. We love you so much. We give you this time in Jesus' precious name. Amen. First thing that catches my attention about this message is that Jesus is leading the way. Right? Look here, first verse. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is walking ahead of them. They're amazed and those who followed were afraid. What's going on here? See, In the whole series, by the way, this is the 30th message or the 30th week we've been in the book of Mark. And most of that time, we've seen Jesus around Galilee. And he's teaching, a couple of times he's gone up to uh, Tyre and Sidon and kind of outside in some pagan areas. But the most of the time in Jesus' teaching has been around Galilee. We see a marked difference today. Jesus now is turning his focus to Jerusalem. And his, his passion, his desire, his obedience to the Father is to go and give his life in Jerusalem. And we see his gaze, everything, focused. In fact, I love the way the text says, Jesus is leading the way. You just get the sense from this text that he's pulling people behind him towards Jerusalem, right? Like, come on, let's go. He probably led the way a lot, but especially now, especially now. He leads the way. He pulls the crowd behind him, and they follow him. But there's a couple of descriptors about the crowd. They're amazed and afraid. They're amazed because, what is he doing? Why why is he walking with such vigor, such tenacity, such resolve to this place where they want to kill him? So they're amazed and afraid. And I think that fear also has a piece of this, uh, this fear of, of, of connection to him, fear of association, if you will. Right? We know what they want to do to Jesus in Jerusalem. And if we're following him, what does that mean for us? So they're amazed, and yet they're also afraid. Have you ever heard the phrase, he's on a mission? <laughs> I know when I get busy in the kitchen, I'm like, move, you know i got to get this, i got to do this, you know. Sometimes you would say something about somebody like that, go, man, he's on a mission, right? This is exactly what Jesus, the sense of Jesus' uh, uh, assignment in this moment. He's on a mission. He's doing what God has called him to do, led him to do, and he is being faithful and obedient to do it. He's walking ahead with a clear sense of purpose. So here, Jesus, on the road to Jerusalem, he stops for a moment. You get a sense that there's a large crowd, and then, of course, the 12th. And so Jesus here, as he's going, and maybe, you know, Jesus knew their hearts. 
And maybe in that moment, Jesus knew their hearts were amazed and afraid. I don't know, but Jesus stops the the whole crowd. Hang on. My guys, come over here for a second. He stops the crowd, pulls the 12 aside, and he does something that he's done two times before in Mark. And what's interesting is he's done this in these consecutive chapters. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. In all three of these chapters, we see Jesus predict his death. Every time. This is what he's going to do again. He predicts uh, the passion of the Christ. Let me just read it again. Pulls the 12 to him. Begins to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. This is the third time Jesus would make this prediction. Now, one of the theologians I was studying this week made a really interesting point. He said, there's a pattern here. There's the same pattern three times in a row. And that pattern is this. Jesus predicts his death. And then we see a foolish response from the disciples. And then we see Jesus teach a deep lesson on discipleship. Some of the deepest lessons of discipleship come from Mark 8, 9, and 10. And so true to that pattern, today we're going to see that pattern happen again. We're going to see it again, right? So here Jesus has now given his... uh, prediction of his death, and in a second we're going to see this foolish response. Well, what, let me remind you of the first two. Uh, Mark 8, 31, Jesus gives a prediction of his death. Do you remember the first foolish response? It was Peter. Peter stands up and says, no, 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 Lord. He, it's, the Bible says he rebukes Jesus. And, of course, Jesus then turns the table on him and says, oh, no, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking of the things of God. So here we have the prediction, and then we have the foolish response from a disciple, and then Jesus teaches the lesson. Probably, in my opinion, the greatest lesson of discipleship in the book of Mark, right? He teaches this lesson that to be my disciple, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to learn from me, which is what the word disciple means, learner, follower, student, if you're going to be that in me, then you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. And then he turns the tables on his head and he does it again today. He says, for if you would save your life, you got to lose it. But whoever would lose his life for my sake or the gospel, actually that's how you'll save it. So we see the pattern, the prediction, the foolish response of Peter, and this deep discipleship lesson that following Jesus means it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about denying actually ourself. That's what discipleship is. Denial of self and picking up the death instrument and walking this life of sacrifice. That's what Jesus says discipleship is. Here's the second one, Mark 9, verse 30. We see Jesus predict his death again. And then the second foolish response from a disciple or from the disciples, as you may remember, they're walking, I believe, to Capernaum. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. I'm better than you. No, you're better. I'm better than you. These guys are pushing each other, making, messing around. Jesus is probably walking up there going, oh, Lord. Right? And they get there and he goes, hey, what were you guys talking about? Silence. Because they knew it was prideful. They knew it was sinful. They didn't want to bring it up. And Jesus says, you were talking about how great you are. Right? Guys, get a clue. It's not about you, he says again. And so we see the prediction, we see the foolish response, and then we see, again, another deep lesson of discipleship. And Jesus' lesson was similar to today's lesson, which is to be great. you got to serve. The first will be last, and the last will be first. got to learn to be a servant of all, guys. Remember, he brings the child up and gives an example of the child and Today we're going to see the third example of this pattern again. But we see Jesus teaching some of his deepest lessons in discipleship. Jesus not only was leading this crowd and leading the way to Jerusalem, 
I want you to know that Jesus knew exactly where he was going. <laughs> Jesus didn't wake up that morning and go, you guys want to go to Jerusalem? I don't know. Let's hang Let's go over there. Let's, let's just change it up today. No. He knew exactly where he was going. He knew the plan, right? He knew exactly what he was doing. There's some people that think, um, they look at Jesus' life and they say he was a failure. What a miserable failure. He led this little movement and then he dies on a cross. But for those of us who know Christ and we know God's word, we know that Jesus did not fail. In fact, he was victorious in everything he did, didn't he? He accomplished all that God had for him to accomplish. Everything. Everything that God wanted him to do, he did. But some people thought he had failed. Jesus didn't fail. Jesus not only knew where he was going, he knew the plan. The Bible says in Revelation 13 that the, the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. So before earth was created, Jesus knew the plan, right? He knew the plan of redemption that God had for him. He knew the way, he knew the plan, he also knew the word. And he was the word, but he knew the word. He saw these prophecies. The Bible says that there are over 300 prophecies about Jesus as Messiah in the Old Testament. Over 300. So for those of you that are on the fence about whether Jesus is real, whether this story is true, whether he really was Messiah, think about this. Over 300 predictions and prophecies of his death. Very specific predictions. Hundreds of years a thousand years before he was born. It's almost as if God Almighty was writing this unbelievable narrative and bringing us into it, helping us to understand. God was trying to help his people see that Messiah was coming. And these are the things that you'll see. These are the things that will happen to know that this is Messiah. Jesus knew the word. I mean, look at, I mean, Genesis 3, right? We start with that when God is cursing the serpent. He says that the offspring of Eve from humanity, Jesus took on flesh as a human, would crush his head, though he would bruise his heel. So from the very beginning of God's word, Micah 5, 2 says, Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 52 and 53, beautiful passages that talk about him taking on our sin, the chastisement for our peace. He takes on our iniquity. Those scriptures also talk about the fact that Jesus would be buried in a rich man's tomb. We know that happened, right? All these different aspects. I love Psalm 22. Psalm 22 actually speaks very specifically about crucifixion. And the psalmist writes specifically, they've pierced my hands and feet. They've divided up my garments and cast lots for them. Exactly what happens. This is 700 years before Jesus is born. That was written. And watch this. This was written. The psalmist wrote this before crucifixion was even a thing in Israel. Isn't it incredible? God was making the way. He was telling what was going to happen. And Jesus knew the word. I, I, I've, I've given these. I think we have these on the screen maybe. All the way from triumphal entry. You may want to take a picture of this or, or write some of these scriptures down, but I want to just show you a few of these quickly of specifics. Triumphal entry, Zechariah 9. And so one of these is prophetical. The other is historical. This is God saying this is going to happen. The next is it happening. Triumphal entry, enemies raging against him, his friends deserting him in the garden, him being betrayed for exactly 30 pieces of silver prophesied and then happened with Judas being lifted up on a cross, his bones not being broken, even though both thieves on either side of the cross of Jesus, their legs broken, but not Jesus, because he had already died, and so they pierce him through with a spear, and he has not one bone broken. Through all that torture, through his crucifixion, his crucifixion is true to the prophecy of Messiah. He's given vinegar to drink. His side is pierced. He's buried in a rich man's tomb. He's victorious over death, and he ascends to the Father's right hand. These are just a few. 
It's just a few. Jesus knew where he was going. He knew the plan of God to redeem the world. He knew the word of God. And so he's walking with resolve and he's leading this crowd to his death. Jesus also wanted his disciples to know the word. It's important as we study the gospels, friends, and as you study the gospel on your own, study the other accounts of the gospel because they give us more information. And in the text that is a parallel text to the one we're studying today in Mark 10 is is Luke 18. And in Luke 18, watch what Jesus says. Verse 31, he says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So this is Jesus pointing back to all those prophecies going, Guys, it's already been laid out. I know it, I want you to know it. You know what, he wants you to know it as well. He wants me to know it as well because it encourages our faith that God is real, that God had a plan before the beginning of time, that God laid it out in his word through his prophets and then he made it happen through his son, right? We can trust him, we can trust him. So Jesus wanted the disciples to know what was spoken of in the word. Of course, Jesus also knew what he had given up. He knew exactly what he had given up. If you try to wrap your brain around the glory of heaven and stepping down from the glory of heaven, I love the way I, I, I write songs sometimes and I love really great lyrics and I love the line that Chris Rice wrote in that Christmas song where he says, Jesus took on our injured flesh. Jesus walks away from glory and heaven to become injured humanity. He knew what he had given up. I like the way Paul describes it in Philippians 2, 5. He says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He knew what he had given up. Paul wrote that text to the church of Philippi to help them understand that we needed to walk and live in humility. In fact, the beginning of that verse says, Have the same mind in you as of Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. So it just continues on. He's talking about humility, and that's exactly what Jesus wants to begin to teach his disciples. You remember the pattern? right? Jesus explains the gospel. He predicts his death. Foolish response from a disciple, and then he teaches a deeper lesson on discipleship. So here we have the third foolish response from a disciple. Look with me, Mark 10, 35 through 41. It says, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Remember when Jesus called them the sons of thunder? (laughs) Yeah, here, here comes some thunder. They came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Whew. Verse 36, and he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Oh, goodness. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Talk about a foolish response from a disciple. Is there anybody in your life, I'm talking about best friend, wife, child, parent, if they came up to you and said, hey, I want you to do for me whatever I ask. That you'd go, okay. Nobody, right? No one. If my child came up and said that, I'd be like, get out of my face. Are you crazy? 
What are you thinking? Whatever you ask, are you talking to me, right? That would be my response. Look at this gracious response from Jesus. I mean, even in his response, he goes, he doesn't do any of that. He goes, what do you want? Isn't that amazing? I, I almost can't even get past that. God could see, Jesus could see their hearts. He could see their lack of awareness. He could see their arrogance. He could see their pride. Guess what? He can see mine. And he still goes, what do you want? What a God of grace we serve. What a God of mercy we have that would even entertain the arrogant and prideful thoughts of our hearts to say, what do you want? Incredible. So insensitive. Here Jesus has just predicted his death, his torture, his imprisonment, his resurrection. He's just predicted these things, and, and James and John, you think that maybe they'd be a little more sensitive. Instead, they come up and go, hey, we want you to do something for us, whatever we ask. Right? So not about what you're talking about, whatever that is. So clueless. Such a lack of awareness. And yet Jesus entertains their question. Jesus puts up with James and John's foolishness. I said Jesus had given them this name, Sons of Thunder. They were brash. And it comes from a, a story in the gospel where at some point they're frustrated with the people who are not listening. And James and John go, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven? Full of faith, right? And Jesus goes, whoa, sons of thunder. So these guys had confidence. Let's just put it that way. These guys were full of energy, so to speak. Maybe a little too much. I, I don't know if it's because James and John were part of two-thirds of the part of the inner circle of Jesus. You know, at South City, we have what we call triads. And they're important because they're, they're, it's two or three people that you, you do life with and you share brokenness with and you study God's word with and you hold each other accountable to the mission of God. We call them triads. Well, we, we get that in part from Jesus' relationship with Peter, James, and John. Here's two-thirds of that triad. So maybe they think, we really know Jesus. I mean, we were on the Mount of Transfiguration. These other guys weren't. I, I mean, it makes sense to me that you'd sit on the left and I'd be on the right. I mean, the right's the most important one, but you know, right? Maybe, maybe they thought they knew him well enough they could be insensitive in this way and ask such a clueless question. What's interesting, though, is we study the parallel passage from Matthew Matthew's gospel tells us they didn't, they didn't ask that question alone. Matthew's gospel says that their mother asked the question. See, Jesus had a whole band of people traveling with him. Evidently, James and John's mother was with them. So, you know, when you look at this, you don't go, oh, what, which one's right or wrong? No, they're both right because it's God's word, right? And so evidently what happened is in the presence of James and John and their mother, we put all this information together. They ask together, we want you to do something for us. And Jesus in Matthew says, what do you want us to do? What do you want me to do? I want you to put one of them on your left and one of them on your right. And he goes through the same conversation. But it's interesting that James and John play the mom card with Jesus. Maybe they knew that he loved her, that he, he was, she was special to him. Maybe if mom comes, we can get this request made. I don't know. So Jesus, in his kindness, he says, what do you want? And they ask the question. You know, their request to sit on his left and right, when you're just reading the Gospel of Mark, it seems odd. Like, where, where does this come from? Sit on the left? And, again, if we study the parallel passage in Matthew, we get a little bit more information. So we go back a chapter to Matthew 19. We finished in our City Group Sunday study last week of of uh, the rich young ruler, right? And at the end of the story of the rich young ruler, when you might remember when uh, the rich young ruler has walked off and, and uh, Jesus says, it's almost impossible. He goes into this conversation, it's almost impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And, and he says, uh, but whoever's given up things for me, you'll, you'll get them back in this life and the next. You remember that? 
And Peter makes this comment. He goes, well, we've given up things, right? Watch what it says in the parallel passage here in Matthew 19, 27. It says, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Peter asked Jesus. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will, uh, will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Oh. So here's just a moment where Jesus gives just a little tiny glimpse of what's gonna, what it's going to be like in the new heaven and new earth. A little bit of the governance of that place that, that the apostles will sit on 12 thrones with Jesus. So this isn't out of nowhere. This is actually a contextual question. And so after Jesus says, yeah, in the new heaven and new earth, you're going to sit on thrones with me. Now it kind of makes sense that John and, and, and James, still with a wrong spirit, still with a, a prideful heart, still with a lack of awareness coming up and saying, we want to sit on the left and the right of what you just asked about, what you mentioned about, right? So at least it gives some perspective to why they would ask such a thing, but it also still says that their question was wrong and their hearts were wrong. Jesus tells him, says, listen, you don't know what you're asking. In other words, you're clueless in this moment. You, you don't know what you're talking about. You can't be the sacrifice for all mankind. Only I can be that. You, you don't know what you're asking. I, I'm not going to go into all that, but you don't know what you're asking. He uses the imagery of a cup when he says, are you going to drink from the cup from which I drink? Well, the Bible uses imagery of a cup to, to uh, kind of explain the wrath of God. So when you look in the Old Testament about a cup, you, you see that, that that is a description of God's wrath. In fact, Jesus mentions a cup in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 14, 36, we're not there yet, we'll get there before too long. When Jesus says, take this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. Jesus is speaking about God's wrath, that he will have to take upon himself to pay the sins of all humanity on the cross. But then a little bit later, he, he kind of, he says this, this to them, and, and the arrogance for with which they go, no, we're able. We can do that. Just kind of shows us throughout the story they still don't get it, right? Yeah, we're able. We can do that. Sons of thunder. We can do anything. Clearly, they were not able because in Matthew 26, we see that when, in what was prophesied, that his friends desert him, James and John were in that crew to just walk away, run away. They leave him. They go away. They were not able to drink that same cup that Jesus had. But then Jesus kind of concedes and says, well, you're going to drink a cup similar to what my cup is like. You're going to drink the cup of persecution. You're going to drink the cup of martyrdom, death, burial. In fact, we know that the very first martyr in Jerusalem is James. It says that he was killed by the, by the sword, so either either run through or his head was cut off in Jerusalem, the first martyr in Jerusalem. Of course, we know his brother John, according to church history, wasn't martyred, but lived the longest out of all the apostles, but he was persecuted, one time boiled in oil, but he lived miraculously, and then he's exiled to an island where he had to move rocks in his old age, and he was exiled, and he was tormented and persecuted. So Jesus is saying, yeah, you're going to drink of some similar cup. He also mentions, but it's not, it's not my decision, right? I, I'm submissive to the Father. It's not my decision who sits on the left and right. Yeah, you'll be in one of the 12 seats, but I don't know who's in the left and right. That's, that's for God to decide. It's my Father's plan. And, and then Mark uses this word we talked about not long ago, indignant. It says the disciples were indignant. Remember that word? It was used when Jesus saw that the uh, disciples were not letting parents bring their babies to the Lord. And when they weren't letting babies come to him, Jesus gets indignant, which is unbelievably furious, angry, frustrated. 
And he goes into this lesson about the kingdom of God belonging to them. Remember that? Well, now we see this word used with the disciples, but it's probably still for a wrong reason. They're probably angry or indignant because they're jealous that they didn't think of sitting asking the same question. They too had wrong hearts. They too were concerned about themselves. They too were worried about their leadership and how they were seen among each other. And then lastly, I want us to to wrap up here. We see Jesus modeling service and sacrifice. So we have the third prediction, the third foolish response, and then we have the third lesson on discipleship that Jesus gives. Verse 42. And Jesus called them to him, and he said, you know that those who are considered rulers of of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus uses the example. He says, guys, the way you're acting right now, that goofy question you just asked, James and John, it's like you're a bunch of Gentiles. And you know how they lord things over each other. They they want somebody on a throne. They want somebody over everybody else. They want to point down. They want to have titles and positions. He says, and you almost feel the intensity of the statement when he says, it will not be so among you. Friends, I want us to hear that as if we're receiving that from Jesus. It will not be so among you. What he's talking about is kingdom people, people who know Jesus as their savior. It will not be so among you. In other words, you gotta look at life differently you got to have different goals than the Gentiles, than people who are not kingdom people. We're kingdom people. Therefore, it will not be like this. You will not lord things over other, other people. And then Jesus goes into this incredible lesson of leadership. He's saying, listen, everything in your flesh, everything in the world is going to say, it's about me. It's about what I want. It's about my preferences. It's about my desire. It's about me. I want to be in charge. I want to be the one with the most toys. I want to be most important. And I want you to see me that way. Has that ever been you? It's been me. It's so been me. Jesus says, no. That's not who we are. That's not who we are. In fact, he says, friends, your life Your work, your marriage, your ministry, your leadership is not about you. It's not about you. He says to be great, you got to be a waiter. Some of you in a little while are going to be at a restaurant. Hope you think about this verse. The Greek word here for uh, a servant is like a waiter. It's like Jesus saying, and if you have a good waiter, man, they're tending to every need, right? Your, your glass never goes empty. You don't have to ask for a napkin. They're just there. So let me turn it around and ask us, how are we living that out with people? In your city group, are you there waiting on their needs? Are you being obedient to Hebrews 10? Right? It says, don't let us grow, uh, don't let us make a habit of not being together. Let's be together so that we can serve one another. That's what Jesus wants of you in the relationships of the church. Are we doing that? Are we willing to serve? He says to be first, you don't only have to wait, you actually have to be slave. Slave of all. And in the first century, slaves were known for not having any rights. To be a slave and to have a master meant that I've given up all of my rights and all I do now is care for your needs. Care for what you want. Care for what's going on in your life. That's all that matters to me. Is that the way you serve Jesus, your master? Lord, whatever you want. What are your, what are your needs? What do you have for me to do? What, how can I serve the church? How can I be faithful to the church? How can I give? Not because the church needs it, but because I'm being obedient to you, Lord Jesus. 
How can I be there? How can I care? How can I serve? How can I minister? How can I uphold what is weak and fill in what is weak? Where can I serve and where can I be a slave of all? That is the heart of kingdom people, Jesus says. Not to lord things over each other. Not to think it's all about me and what I want, but to say, I want to serve people. I want to love. I want to be available. To be great and first in the kingdom is about serving and sacrifice. I mean, can I tell you, Jesus never one time asked us to do anything he hasn't already done himself. Never. I, I love the idea from a commentary from last week's study about the rich young ruler that said, Jesus was really the rich young ruler. Remember that? I love that. He was the richest of rulers. And he gave it all away to save you. And so then now he comes to the, what we call the rich young ruler and he says, give it all away and come follow me. And he can't do it. But Jesus had already done it. Friends, in the same way, and Jesus in this unbelievable, teachable moment, he teaches us about serving and sacrifice, and he literally says, watch this. Watch me serve. Watch me sacrifice. Watch me give up everything for you. That's what he does. Verse 45, arguably the most important verse in all of the Gospel of Mark. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus here is talking, it's in the context of serving and sacrifice and, and being a blessing and, and giving up your rights. Jesus says, if the Son of Man, of course that's a phrase that comes from Daniel, another messianic prophecy, Daniel 9. It was his favorite term for himself. If the Son of Man can come to not be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, I think you can too, is what he's saying. That's the context. Speaks of why Jesus came. Why did Jesus come to the earth? Mark 10, 45. Came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Daniel Aiken says in definition of this, he says, ransom means to deliver by purchase. It means a payment, usually of money required to release someone from punishment of slavery. We need a ransom because we had all gladly and willfully sold ourselves into the bondage of slavery to sin. When he purchased us, our slave masters, sin, death, hell, and Satan had to set us free. He's ransomed us. He's freed us. I love the way Peter speaks of our ransom in 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21. Peter's writing to believers who are fleeing Jerusalem. They're under great persecution. And he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each other's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Friends, the whole text today, from the very first verse of Jesus leading this crowd amazingly towards Jerusalem and his death to the very last verse that says, this is why I came. He leads the way. He leads the way for us too, friend. What does it mean for us, for you, for me, to not be a Gentile, to not be somebody who doesn't know Christ, but a follower of Jesus, kingdom people? It means that we do things differently. Lee. That's what it means. Ultimately, Jesus leads his disciples and us this morning in this lesson of selflessness. He teaches about being great, but not in the ways we might imagine, not in the ways our flesh would think, 
To be great means to serve. I love the picture of Jesus in John as he he gets on his knees to wash the feet of his disciples. I can't even wrap my brain around creator washing the feet of the created. And yet he does. He teaches. He models selflessness and service. He says, to be great you serve, and yet there's none greater than Jesus, right? Whose purpose was to come and serve a broken and sinful humanity. And how desperate a need we had to cover our sinfulness, that he would give his life on a cross and sacrifice himself, putting us first. Putting God first in his obedience. Just make this side note, I thought it was important to make. Some people think that, that when Jesus paid a ransom, he paid it to the devil. Well, he must have paid it to the enemy, right? Because the enemy has caused his sin. And, no. Jesus, the entire time of his passion, had full control of what he was doing. John 10, 17 says, I lay my life I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Friends, we need to know that the ransom that Jesus paid was to the Father. Because the Father is holy and just. And if he continues to be holy and just, he cannot allow sin It must be punished. Your sinfulness must be punished. My sinfulness. And so the reality is, if you don't know Christ today, your sinfulness will be punished with you in hell for all eternity. Or you can submit to God Almighty and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Take on you the punishment of my sinfulness And when Jesus pays a ransom, he pays it to the Father for those who would trust him and know him and love him and live for him. That is the gospel. It's because of that ransom that we get to live for him, right? that we get to be family together, we get to be obedient to him, that we get to walk in his ways. When I think about James and John, I think about Drew a whole lot. How foolish, how incredibly arrogant I am. How sinful my heart. That I would request things like, God, I want you to do whatever I ask. And somehow in his grace he says, what do you want? What a good, good father. What a loving God, what a merciful Savior to even entertain such a foolish question. And yet he gives us opportunities for us to know and understand that grace and that service and that sacrifice in his word, just like this morning, just like in our city groups as we grow together and learn. And the Spirit leads us to all truth, whether it be from this pulpit or from one another. Friends, can I tell you, the way of the kingdom is to learn to serve. Kingdom people will be a people who give up their rights so that others may come to know Jesus. That's what kingdom people do. Life, marriage, ministry, leadership, it's not about me. It's about others. And so I would ask you with a sincere heart, as you're thinking about your church, as you're thinking about your city group, as you're thinking about your life, is the question really about you or is it about other people who need Jesus? Is it about other people who need to be discipled and loved together? Or is it, I don't really like that? Because where we see that happen in Scripture, we see Jesus go, friends, it's not about you. It's about service and sacrifice. Let us be a kingdom people who just want to serve and sacrifice and make him known in obedience to the Lord. It's not about us. 
this last thing I'll say to you from Philippians 2, Paul says, have in yourselves the mind of Christ. May we have a mind and heart of Christ, a heart and mind of humility to serve and love and walk life knowing him with one another, serving one another, making sacrifice for one another out of obedience, putting other people first. That's the way of the kingdom. That's the way of Jesus. So what does it mean for your heart? Where is your heart? Where is my heart today? Because I'll be honest with you, often my heart is all about me. But when my heart is unified with the Father, it's all about him. When my, my heart is right, it's about people. It's about lost people. It's about those who need Jesus. And so that's my encouragement to you that we would have the mind and the heart of Christ, a heart of humility to serve and sacrifice. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning and thank you for your word. And God, I pray that you'd help us to have different goals. <laughs> this world, God, will tell us that our goals need to be more money and more influence and more power. What did that do for the rich young ruler when he placed that above a relationship with Jesus and obedience to Jesus? Oh God, may we be obedient to you. May our lives be found in obedience to you. And so where you give us influence, where you give us wealth, where you give us power, may we see that it's not about us. It's about those around us. It's about serving them. It's about being a slave to all. About letting your agenda come through us. Oh, Lord, when we do, we can't even imagine what you repay in this life and the next. We can't even imagine the fellowship with you. Even when it's suffering or persecution, we can't imagine the joy that you give us, Lord. Father, I want to just say, would you forgive me of my sin? Forgive me of my arrogance and my pride, my selfishness, my ridiculous questions and requests. May that be our heart today, God, that you would help us to see where we've gone wrong and humbly come before you and ask that you forgive us and change us to serve your agenda, to be faithful to you, to obey you, to love people more than ourselves. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.